Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey again, everybody. Hey, we, we got to get going. We got work to do. I don't know if you guys caught it, but uh, we just got uh, three songs for the price of two. And he said he was going to tag Cornerstone. That means sing the whole thing. Um, so love it, man. I love that song. It's one of my favorites. But if you're new to CBC, we come here and we open the scriptures and we open the scriptures not because we want to know more about God. That is great. But our knowledge of God has an end goal, and that's to be transformed, as writers before me have said. Scripture is there not just to give information, but to be transformative or to be transformational for us. So we come to this space acknowledging that we live in a critical world, and, and because we're insecure and prideful at the same time, we often take that out on others. But, but the work of the Spirit, the work of the Scripture is oftentimes inward to conviction, not outward to critique. I say all that to say this, God's going to change us this morning when we open his word, and I'm excited about it. So we're going to start just by praying, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and all that is is an acknowledgement that he is here, and that he's going to be working, and we're going to look out for it. So let's pray this morning. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful that we can worship. I'm thankful that when we sing, it reminds us of those things that sometimes we forget that you are good and that you're our bedrock and you're worth pursuing. And so I pray that the songs come back to us during the week like songs do and remind us of what we know to be true. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning as we open your word. If you're comfortable, just take a few minutes or seconds and and just pray that the Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning, that you might hear the voice of God through the scriptures. Pray for me this morning that God uses the preparation to do supernatural things, not just through what I've done and what I'm saying, but through the work of the Holy Spirit in his people. That's what God does. He works through us to give us a bigger picture of his goodness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. There's a line in a book last year that I read, and it kind of stuck with me. The line is this, that reality is what we run into when we're wrong, right? It's going to go up on the screen. Yeah, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. It kind of struck me. I was reading a book on truth in our world, and the writer defined truth as anything relating to reality. So reality then is finding out what truth is in, in a world that really is struggling with how we define truth right now. This author simply said, and what we find when we run into reality are those places where we're wrong and we need to find truth again. Make sense? So let me give you an example. If reality is what we run into what we run into when we're wrong, I'm about to go in about six and a half weeks from two kids to three kids. And I have heard stories of how dumb that idea was. I have these ideas of what it's gonna it's not gonna be that bad. What's one more kid? What's another four years of diapers? It's a biblical plague, is what it is, but I'm moving beyond that. And I'm sure from my first kid to this kid or any life stage, when you go from high school to college or college to your first job and you realize that working five days in a row is different than three classes a day, three days a week, and you think, why am I so tired every Friday, you know? 
Or when you go from single to married and you realize that life's not as much about you as it used to be. Or when your kids move out of the house and you realize that this maybe isn't what I was expecting. Reality is what we run into when we're just wrong. And societally, we know that too. And you can go back to, I like to look at two different things to prove this. One is science. You can go, I mean, all throughout our history, scientific discoveries are when we've ran into the moments when we're wrong, whether it's anything about our planetary system or like how we used to think that we revolved around, the sun revolved around us and it doesn't. To to medicine, I mean, a hundred years ago, we thought that a cure-all for kids coughing was heroin and we gave it to them. You know what it did? It stopped their coughing, but there was a cost, everybody, you know? I mean, you can look time and time again about how reality as a species, as a person, as people that follow God, reality is what we run into when we're wrong. Here's my problem today, is that we live in a world where less and less we run into reality because less and less we have to deal with the wrongness of ourselves. Because you can go online and find someone that agrees with you on whatever you believe and not actually have to deal with the places that where reality confronts your wrongness. You can go online right now and find millions of people that will agree with you that the earth is flat. And if you believe that, we will have a chat later on, I'm sure. But the problem with the world that we live in is we don't run into reality anymore as much as we used to. And we're not faced with those moments where we're wrong and the cost of that is what we know to be true. And so my question today and our story today deals with some Pharisees who are running into the reality that Jesus is God, but they didn't want to see it. And our response to the reality that we run into determines if we live into the kingdom or oftentimes outside of the kingdom of God. Today's conversation is about the reality of God in our world and where we see it and where we run into it and what happens when we don't. So our story picks up in Matthew 12. Uh, We're going to pick up right in verse 23. It says, they brought him a demon-possessed man, might be 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, Jesus healed him so he could speak and see. All crowds were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? That verse is not a small verse. It's not a one-off. All miracles aren't the same in the scriptures, by the way. You might think they are. They're not. Did you know that in the Old Testament, there's not one example, not one of somebody being healed from blindness. Three people got raised from the dead. There's not one example of giving sight to a blind person born blind. It's Jesus' most popular miracle. He did it more than any other miracle in the New Testament. And once he's gone, it doesn't happen again in the New Testament. Do you know why that is? Because in the scriptures, giving sight to blind was strictly seen as a messianic act. It was strictly seen as God's work and nobody else's. So when Matthew, of all people, who was steeped in his Jewish lineage and heritage and traditions, says this phrase that he gave sight to a blind man and people responded, is this our savior, the son of God or son of David? Is this our savior? It's a one-to-one correlation. What he's saying with that miracle is that God is here and God has come. It's a beautiful, beautiful reminder in our text that Jesus is a completion in the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets that say the first thing Messiah does is bring sight to blind and set captives free. And and so when in our text it starts with Jesus healed him so he could speak and see, of course the crowds were amazed. And of course they said, could this be the son of David or the Messiah? Because this is what God does. 
If you look at the verse above that in verse 16 that we dealt with a little bit last week, as he's doing these miracles, literally people are starting to see that this guy, Jesus, is more than just a prophet and he's more than just a great preacher and he's more than just a really skilled rabbi that he might be more than all these things combined. And they start to kind of see that and Jesus has to tell them in verse 16, do not make me known. That's because... As Jesus' name and fame grew, people started to realize more and more who he actually was. And first of all, this is kind of a one-off but important. I think that's really important to see the incremental nature of people believing in Jesus throughout the Gospels. Because we reduce incremental growth to instantaneous growth in a culture that has no patience. And when we do that, if we don't grow instantaneously like we assume they did in the scriptures, we think either we're broken, kind of are, but in a different way, and God is broken. We, we assume that God's not real or he's not good or he's not working in us and through us. This is a moment, and it's the last moment the Pharisees are gonna get to see the goodness of God before they start really challenging it. This is a moment when they started seeing more incrementally who Jesus is and they start to see the reality of his kingdom, meaning they're running into their view of what kingdom was and what Jesus actually was and they have a decision point in this moment. Do we admit that we're wrong and trust in God's reality of kingdom or do we run from it? You know what the, the, rabbi, the, uh, the Pharisees did? Keep reading. They said after this, the Pharisees heard and said, does he not cast out demons except by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons? It's a Philistine god that kind of morphed over time. It was the ruler of the underworlds and the powers and the demonic forces. And so they see the reality of God in this moment. And instead of being confronted by their wrongness, they choose to run from it and be blind to it. That's why when he says that he brought sight to the blind, it's so much more than just a physical act. It's being able to see the working of God in our world. And so what I want to do today is take the next 30 minutes or so and, and look at Jesus' response. Because what he does, he gives three statements here, and they start with if. In, in the Greek, it's called a first-class conditional. Impress your friends at lunch. All that means is that instead of if, it means since. It means he's making a statement of fact, not a proposition of possibly fact. It's like if I said to my wife, uh, and she said, hey, Charlie, fantasy football is really taking away from our quality time as a family. And I said, well, here's what will happen. If the Cowboys don't make it to the Super Bowl next year, I'll quit fantasy football. I would really be saying, since the Cowboys are the Cowboys, I'm done with fantasy football, right? There's several Cowboys jokes this morning. Gear up, everybody, all right? I gotta get it out somehow and I'm really frustrated. It's been a long time. Um, so what Jesus does when they look at the kingdom of God, the reality of God working in their world, instead of being confronted by their wrongness, they run from it. And so Jesus says, here's three ways I can prove to you. I can show you the reality of my kingdom if you'll see it. And so they say, well, isn't this guy healing from uh, a demonic place? And he responds, when Jesus realized what they were thinking, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed. No town or house divided against itself will stand. So if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom then stand? And that statement in and of itself has two different components to it. One, Jesus is arguing rationally that any house divided against itself won't lead to a stronger house. So if Satan wants more influence in the world, which he does, if I'm working for Satan and me working against his influence growing in the world really isn't a sustainable model for ministry or growth. I think about in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, 
He has uh, uh, an example of a marital counselor, a psychologist, I believe, named John Gottman. And in the 70s, they were trying to figure out like why divorce happened. And so he started developing these theories. And in Blink, uh, Gladwell says that he could take 15 minutes of you and your wife talking about something, or you and your spouse arguing about something. And he narrowed it down to four different criteria. And he'd look at these four things. He'd film you and he'd watch you. In 15 minutes, he and his team would predict with a 94% success rate if you're going to get divorced in the next three years. And you could be talking about grocery shopping. It was amazing. And he narrowed it down to four different things. He says, I'm looking for criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. If these things exist on a level that's consistent, your relationship is in trouble. What he says is what Jesus says. If I'm fighting against the goodness of my spouse, or in this case, Satan, then how is a sustainable model for what's going on? What you're saying is irrational, he's saying to the Pharisees. You ever know anybody? And by that, I mean, do you ever do this? I'm just trying to be kind. Do you ever know anybody that says irrational things to defend their position because they don't want to admit rationality when they see it? You know, like they go so far out of bounds illogically to defend a place because they don't want to admit the logic of what's going on right in front of him. They see Jesus healing and instead of that, what they'll say is, well, it has to be Satan, even though that's illogical and irrational. And so the first thing Jesus is saying to these people is that the kingdom of God, the reality of God is reasonable and rational if you look and see it. And this is another two or three sermons. I'm going to make it a series in the next couple of years. But one of my favorite things to talk about is the reasonableness and the rationalness of God. Because you can come here and say, I don't like God or earthquakes happen and God can't be good. You can talk about theodicy all day long. But one thing I think you have a really hard time doing is showing me that a belief in God, in the kingdom of God, in the power of God is irreasonable or unrational. And so Jesus confronts these Pharisees and says, a belief in the rationality of Jesus, the reasonableness of my kingdom is good and it's here. And so when you look at the conversation on the reasonableness of God, there's really three different ways to have it in our world right now. Uh, and, and Aquinas made these arguments hundreds of years ago. But the three biggest ones are going to be the argument from creation or cause, the argument from design, and the ar- argument from morality. And I have three pages of notes I'd like to read you people, but it's late and I'm going to try to get through it as fast as possible. I love these conversations. So I'm going to summarize a few scientists because I'm not one of them. I went to Bible college. Our science class existed of God created. Seven days later, take a nap, go home, ace the test, okay? But when we talk about these different ideas, one of my favorites is when people ask me, why do I believe in God? Uh, Really what I come down to is outside of all the other things like Jesus and the Bible, I really believe that fundamentally it makes sense that something uncaused caused all the caused things in our world. So what that means is everything you see around you, every single thing you see around you is caused by something. That chair, your car, you, all the things are caused by something. And, and, and at some point, if you go back in infinity, there had to be a cause that existed before all those things or nothing would exist. Aquinas puts it like this. He said, all beings apart from God are not their own being but are beings by participation. What he's doing is saying there was a cause to the universe. And you know the really fun thing? 
1927, the Big Bang Theory launched in the world. And since then, the scientific community has actually expressed the truth that this world was caused by, our universe was caused by something. And they've said, we just don't know what it is. But they've pinpointed that the Big Bang literally was caused in a single moment, in a single time, in a single space, and is ever expanding from there, there outside of it. And they just would look and say, we just don't know what that causes. And we would say, can I answer the question? Let me quote you a couple scientists that are smarter than me. Stephen Hawking says that everyone now believes in the scientific community that the universe had a beginning. Dr. Robert Jastro, he was the uh, head of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Study for two decades. I'm going to quote him quite a bit here. He said, and by the way, he's an agnostic. He said, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to a man commenced suddenly, to, the chain of events leading to man commencement suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. He goes on to say, astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, planet, and every living thing in the cosmos and on earth. And they have found that all of this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover, that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. And this dude doesn't believe in God. He goes on to say, and I love this line, he wrote a book on it, and this is how he ends his book. He said, for the scientist who'd lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> so this is just a little bit to get into the conversation, but I love the argument from cause. There's also the argument from design meaning that the reasonableness of God, and Jesus is pointing out here, the reasonableness of God is not just look around and see the world at a starting point, but the starting point of the world is seemingly uh, intelligent. That even if, even if there was a random happenstance that started everything, how you get intelligent life from no life at all is astronomically difficult to prove. I love talking about a couple different things, the Fermi paradox and the, the Drake equation, which essentially is um, what astronomers talk about when they talk about why life exists here and nowhere else. So in the 50s, this Italian philosopher and scientist uh, named Fermi decided to ask the question, where are all the other people in the universe? And so that was the paradox. Was, if there's all this other life, where is it? He came up with like four reasons or four, uh, uh, basically four things that have to happen for life to exist. And over the next 60 years, they tried to prove that those four things can prove that there's life everywhere. Those four things actually grew to like 200 things as we realized how complex life was. And we still haven't found life. And to cut out about a page and a half of notes here, now you have researchers saying that maybe, maybe, maybe we were wrong and this thing that we're living in is so extraordinarily rare that we might only be the life in our universe. And again, these are not God followers. I will quote one of them. It says, this implies, this is a researcher out of Oxford, that life as we know it is incomprehensibly rare, and if other intelligences exist, they're probably far beyond cosmological horizons and therefore will be forever visible, invisible to us. He goes on to say, Earth's location, size, composition, structure, and atmosphere, and temperature, its internal dynamics, and its many intricate cycles that are essential to life. 
They said they testified to the degree to which our planet is exquisitely and precariously balanced. Anthony Flew, who basically started the modern atheist movement in the 50s and has grown out of what he wrote, became a Jesus follower in the early 2000s before he died because he said, I got to the end of the science and realized this world is way too complex to chalk it up to happenstance. He says in his book, I quote, I now believe there is a God. I now think the evidence points to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is it's shown by almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligent life must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. Even Darwin, in his book, The Origin of the Species, quote, says, to suppose that the eye, with all its, int- with all its uh, uh, intricacies for adjusting the focus of different distances, for admitting different amounts of light in and out, and for correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, this is Darwin says, seems, I freely confess, absurd to the highest degree. So my point here, if you haven't caught on yet, is what Jesus is doing is saying the belief in what I'm doing is, is reasonable and it's almost unreasonable to, 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 to believe that what I'm doing is unreasonable. Unre- what, he, what he's saying is that when we look around, we see evidences for a reasonable God. And the last one, the morality one, we'll do this really quickly. If you want notes, email me, I'll give them to you. But there's a study that was done out of Harvard. And basically, you know what they found with pre-verbal babies? They found that literally babies from four to six months old have a built-in morality and they don't have to explain it. They took two puppets and one did a good thing and one did a bad thing. And the babies gravitated almost all of them towards the puppet that did a good thing. And there were pieces and articles written about 2010, 11, 12, 13 about how babies who haven't yet had the nature nurture thing built in are wired towards good and they don't know how to explain that. Again, as followers of Jesus, we'll say, give me a crack at it. I've got an idea, you know? This goes back to this undenying principle that Jesus is getting to when he's talking to the Pharisees as they look around and their reality comes in, flies in the face of Jesus' reality. You gotta, you gotta pick one here. And he says, my reality is not illogical or unrational. Yours is, look at what I'm doing. All that to say, the work of God in our world is rational and reasonable to believe. It's almost more rational to believe it than to not believe it. And that's not me talking, that's scientists So it's this beautiful picture of when we talk about where truth is and when we talk about where reality is and when we talk about the kingdom of God this morning, the question that this whole thread of the sermon is going to be, where do we see the reality of God as real in our world? And what do we do? Do we run towards or do we run away? So Jesus first starts by saying, my kingdom is reasonable, but then he keeps going with the next statement. He says, if I cast out God, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I cast them out by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. So what he's referencing there is a couple different places where people in the first century, Pharisees, had cast out demons, and they had, at this point, said that was a work of God. So what he says is, if you think all of these kind of works are works of God, then what happens when your people do it? And he kind of backs them in a corner and says to them, if your sons do it or their apprentices do it, not literally familiar sons, if your sons do it and you think it's okay, then then when I do it, what can you say about it? And that word there, at the end, the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. It's a tense in the Greek that literally is a past action that has present implications. We see another example in Philippians 3 when Paul's talking about the prize of Christ and how we live into sanctification. 
Nevertheless, let us give up to the standard that we have already attained, that already attained. There's the same word in the Greek. It literally means that it's already a present reality. And so his second if statement is, hey, since or if, since the kingdom of God is reasonable, it's also all around you. It's evidenced and it's expanding if you just look at it. And that's one of the themes of the scriptures, that the kingdom of God, the work of Jesus in our world has already begun to redeem and restore. It won't be fulfilled until he comes back. But Jesus declared that his kingdom was good and active. Jesus declared that his kingdom wasn't dead, but rather very much alive. The way that Jesus talked about kingdom fights into our ideas sometimes about a heaven-hell culture where you accept Jesus as a kid when you're three, four, and five just so you can go to heaven one day. The kingdom of Jesus is all about what it's doing right here, right now, today. It's a beautiful depiction of God at work in a dying world, bringing life to death, bringing hope to hopelessness. That's why Jesus, when asked how to pray, says this in Matthew 6. Tell God, he says that, hey, you, your, your father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He doesn't say, your kingdom come one day when we leave this place and go be somewhere else that's better. He says, your kingdom come right here, right now. You know why? Because Jesus came and he inaugurated the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, the power of God in a world that's been held under the power of Satan. It's this light, darkness, good, evil battle, and Jesus is saying, my kingdom is here, and it's doing something. Another phrase that he says in a couple chapters in Matthew 16, he says, he told Peter, you've heard this verse, you are the rock I build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's this idea that Jesus paints a picture to the Pharisees that in a battle of the two kingdoms, mine is established and it's expanding. It's growing somewhere. And that has amazing implications for followers of Jesus, you and me, that we're not just waiting until heaven to find the goodness of God in our world, that we literally are responsible for bringing more of that right here, right now, the way I raise my family, the way I pastor this church, the way I act at work, the way I treat my friends, the way I talk to one another. We let people see the goodness of God, the redeemed nature of what Jesus does, life in the middle of death, by how we live, heaven comes to earth. It has profound implications on how we live. We say it every Easter. My Easter message is the same every year. So look, guys, you don't gotta show up this year. Uh, but my Easter message is the same, is that the resurrection of Christ is not just for one day, it's for two days we live and walk in the power of a resurrected Jesus in a world that needs hope. I'm gonna use different words, I'm gonna make you laugh more, so come on Easter, everybody, okay? But it's the, 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 the reality that Jesus says that not only is my kingdom reasonable, but it is present and it is, it is expanding in your midst if you just look and see. If you would just follow the signs, he says to the Pharisees. He casts out a demon here, he does that 12 other times in the Gospels. He heals blind people in, in the verse in front of that in 16. It says he healed everybody that came to him. What he's saying is that my kingdom is here and if you're look and see, it's already starting to overtake the world around you. Will you look and see it? And then finally, he says, how else can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his property? Unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can thoroughly plunder the house. It's a quote from Isaiah, so he's likening back to one of the prophets and so they'd all kind of know what he was talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God coming to release the captives and hopefully bring restoration. And Jesus' point here is simple but good and powerful that my ways are bigger and better and better than the ways that are holding the world captive. Because I tied that guy up and now I get to plunder his house. Jesus is not saying that he's a fan of theft. 
but he is saying that he, in a fight with the ruler of our world, wins. And so this argument is not just that it's reasonable to believe in the kingdom of God. It's not just that the kingdom of God is expanding if you just see it. It's more than that. It's that my ways are bigger, better, and more powerful than those that are holding you captive right now. Think about it. At length, we've talked about this. It's why our podcast is called A Better Way, at which there's a new season out, by the way. Our, at, at length, we've talked about the fact that the ways of Jesus are literally for your betterment right now. Not so you can make God happy, but that you might be happy because God designed life to be a certain way. I have a small group I meet with on Thursday nights, and we started reading uh, Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. I haven't read it in a little while. It's really good. And the first chapter in that book is Keller kind of talking about culturally how we see marriage and, and how it works out and kind of divorce rates. But in the middle of that, he talks about God's good design for marriage, how it leads to flourishing. And it reminded me that in a world that is pretty disenfranchised with marriage, because it leads to a lot of, um, well, just hurt, that God's designed for it's for your best. And that, you know what? The happiest married people are Christians, if you look at studies and polls. And if you follow your life around the ways of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the reality of God in our world, it's going to lead to a better place where the destructiveness is tied up and God overcomes and wins and we flourish. And so he says, you want to see the reality of my kingdom? It's reasonable and, and, and it's expanding right in front of you, but also it's just better for you because my ways are more powerful than the ways that you know of living in the life that you've lived. And you can look at any stat too and talk about how like the ways of people that follow Jesus leads to a more flourishing society. So not just like in your marriage, but I can give you stats on how it leads to your better health and your better mental health and your family's flourishing. You know, there's stats that talk about at, that where churches are, literally their churches are, uh, communities are stronger, that graduation rates are higher, that crime is lower, that people are more generous, even, even, get this, even in a suburb of, let's just say, a big metropolitan city in the Bible Belt South where there's 16 churches in two minutes a year. You know that? It's still good for us, everybody. It makes the case that, that whether you like God or not, whether you believe in God or not, the ways of God are good for people. And so what you have to do there is come to this position in this pivotal point of, will I acknowledge it or will I not? That's what Jesus is doing with these Pharisees. And so then he continues and says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And it's an it's a agrarian reference to like when sheep go out and they start running chaotically, you can either be part of the problem or you can be part of the solution. But if you sit there and watch them scatter, then you're not part of the gathering, everybody. You're not helping, you're hurting. And so he says in this really divisive line to these people that are trying to pick sides, their reality or God's reality, their truth or God's truth, their good or God's good, whoever is not with me is against me. I love what C.S. Lewis says. There is no neutral ground in the universe Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. He makes a case <laughs> that we are running into the reality of God all the time. Will we run to it or will we run away from it? Away from it? There is no middle ground there because these Pharisees are in their last attempt to see that God is still good. And then there's this popular verse right after that. For this reason, I tell you, people who are, will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. It's a popular verse that people know, and I just want to deal with it, kind of in a side note here for a couple minutes, um, but not spend a ton of time on it. So this is the verse that's known as the unforgivable sin. 
A couple different ways to interpret that. Let me tell you the wrong ways to interpret it. Uh, one is that the unforgivable sin isn't just a really big sin. Sometimes I've heard that. People get scared by this verse. Like there's something you can do to make God not love you anymore. Let me tell you something. That's not true. There's no way that's true because <laughs> we've done it all and he still came for us. There's no amount of affairs. There's no amount of, of murders. There's no amount of what fill in the blank with the most heinous crime that you think of. God still says, I saved you from that. So one, this does not mean like really big sin. Uh, two, I don't even think it's when we attribute God things to Satan because that happens all throughout the scriptures and the New Testament. People miss God. And so if you think, well, well, one time God did this thing and I didn't think it was God. And so I did this sin. You didn't. Uh, again, because there's nowhere you can go to outkick the coverage of God's grace for you. Um, I think what this verse is talking about, there's two different ways that I think are appropriate to interpret it, and you get to pick which one you want. One is that this is a one-time thing that only could happen in that exact moment because Jesus was doing something extraordinary there, and the Spirit was doing something extraordinary there, so this is an easy one. You can't do it because you weren't there, is an interpretation, and that's a good one. I hold to a different interpretation. I hold to this being... When you consistently say no to the work of the Spirit in our world, it's a consistent rejection of God. And so a consistent rejection of God over time will leave you consistently without God forever. It's that idea that at the end of the day, God is wooing us towards him, but he will not make you love him. And so he's saying, if you constantly see the Spirit and reject the goodness of the Spirit, then in the end, you get what you wanted, which is either God or not God. I love what a couple of writers say about it. Um, one of them says that there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that is seriously and consistently desirous joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, uh, the door is opened. Look what Willard says about it. Hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by a constant effort to avoid and escape God. J.I. Packer says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or to be without God forever worshiping themselves. So I think what's happening in this text is he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, you're running into the reality of my kingdom and you're rejecting it over and over and over again. And a consistency to do that over a lifetime will lead right where you want to leave, lead in eternity without God. It's that idea, and this kind of changed it for me, that if, if you really hate God, an eternity with God would be hell for you, you know? And God gives free choice because he is loving. And so it's this idea that um, if you really don't want God, you don't get God. And so when he says, uh, this is the unforgivable sin, I think he means what we know to be true, that if you reject God for eternity, for in this life, you don't get God for eternity. And, and here's what I know to be true. If you're worried that you committed the sin, you didn't because you're worried about it in the first place. So many times people use this to make people feel guilty. Guilt's an easy emotion to make people feel, you know that? <laughs> it's really simple to bring people to a place of guilt and sadness. But I think Jesus is doing is he saying, check your motivation and understand your response to the reality of my kingdom, to the truth of who I am. And, and that's why he ends this passage with this little uh, expression example parable. He said um, at the end, make a tree and uh, <clears throat> make a tree and its fruit will be good if it's a good tree. Or make a tree that's bad and its fruit will be bad for the tree is known by its fruit. The offspring of vipers, talking about the Pharisees, 
How are you able to say anything good since you're evil? For a mouth speaks from what fills the heart. The good person brings good things out of his good treasury, and the evil person brings evil things out of his evil treasury. I don't think this passage at the end is really all about like the power of words. The scripture is full of those passages. I don't think this one is. What I think he's doing to a bunch of people, to the Pharisees and his disciples, I think he's asking them what reality they're going to buy into. You're going to let the reality of God rule over you, or are you going to run from it? And if you don't know, look at your life, you know? And you will find your reality by literally looking at your tree, by looking at what fruit you, 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 you put out. And a couple notes on that, again, this goes back to the incremental and the instant, is fruit takes time to grow. Let's not take my bad Monday and assume that's 2 a.m. all the time, all right? Because last Monday I had the kids at home and snow and ice and it was not pleasurable. I was probably not the most patient person. <laughs> I think he's saying to a group of people that constantly rejected him, hey man, you, your, your words, your words are gonna condemn you because they are a picture into your soul. And over time, if you hang out with somebody, that's what they do. I can get up here for 40 minutes, write a sermon and let you believe anything about who I am. But who I really, really am is how I talk to my wife on Monday and Tuesday if I'm well-rested, right? If I'm not, it's not my fault. Um, that's why he says at the end there, you'll be judged. Um, and he says that for the mouth speaks for what, for what fills the heart. The good person brings good things out of his treasury. The evil person brings evil things. He says people will give an account for every worthless word they speak. I don't think he's saying words are worthless. What I think he's saying is those words that you don't see or think have value, they show what you really value, you know? It's that character analogy, that character is who you are when no one's looking. And so he gets in front of a group of people and are confronted with the reality of God, <laughs> that are confronted with ways that they're wrong about how the world works and who Jesus is, and he gives them a choice. You either see my reality is good for you or you run from it. You let it rule over you or you run the other direction and pick you over me. And so what this text does for us is it shows us as I look at my life in, a, in kind of a place of a follower of Jesus is... As I've already trusted God, this is not a convicting passage about the state of your soul. I'm not given a heaven or hell, raise your hand, eyes closed, head bowed. That's not this moment, everybody. This is Crossroads, not First Baptist of every city. Um, but I do think what it does for me as I read it is it begs the question, where in my life do I run into the reality of God? And then what do I do when I do? You know? And by the reality of God, I mean the reasonable and the present and the powerful and the good reality of God. And so not, not for the state of my soul for eternity, but I think we all run into the reality of God often. <laughs> I think that's what sanctification is, is running into the reality of God. And in those moments where we see where we're wrong, we can choose the reality of God over self. That's what growth looks like. That's what it looks like to look more like Jesus. Because I think we're all running into the reality of God every single day. The question that began this whole passage is, do you see it? Because the more we live in the ways of Jesus, the more he lets us see the reality of God in our world. To choose to live into his goodness, his reasonableness, his presentness in our world. And so, so this week, I think it's just a matter of us asking that same question. How do we see the reality of God? In my house? At my job? With my kids? So I'm running into it somewhere. And if I'm not, maybe that's the answer to my question. Because the goodness of God is coming after all of us and the kingdom of God is growing and expanding and growing up like his disciples are doing now, like the Pharisees refuse to do in these contested passages in Matthew 12. Growing up is all about running into the reality of God and your response to it. And Christ-likeness and maturity 
is when we confess that we own far less and we control far less and we depend far more on a God who's far greater than we ever, ever thought in the first place. It's when we run into the reality of God and we recognize we need it. We recognize that it's good for us. We see it because we know a God who gives sight to the blind. So, so, so might we be a church man that leaves this place and asks a simple question, where is the reality of God in my life? And how is it taking over me and how I live? Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for your reality. I need it in a world that oftentimes makes it so easy to run from the places that were wrong or what we know to be true. I, I need the consistency of the goodness of God to show me what my good truly is. So my, my prayer is that we can see it clearly. My prayer is that when confronted with those moments, you don't get puffed up in pride, but rather repent in humility. My prayer is that when you ask us to follow, we do. And when you show us that you redeem and rescue, we say thank you. So might we be a people that run into the reality of God often and show others that you're good and that we need you. Might we be a people that as we live day in and day out, see you all the places we go, and how you're changing and transforming a broken world because that's the hope of the gospel. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.